Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are going to be talking about prophets and syncretism. And so we can kind of jump right into that. So within our setting of Christianity today, we have found ourselves really being in a melting pot of ideologies and spiritual beliefs. Um, religion has particularly been plagued by a culture of customization and pick and pull spirituality, right? So it, it does often result in a departure from biblical Christianity, especially when it comes to prophets and prophecy and the means of acquiring divine revelation. And that's kind of our focus today. Now, with this all said, it's easy to just sit back and look at things and say, wow, this is disheartening. Uh, but we should recognize that this issue of syncretism is not new, but it's present and addressed in the Old Testament. It's present and addressed in the New Testament and within the early church. Uh, and so we're going to survey what a false prophet looks like in these different um, periods. And then we're going to discuss why we need to be cautious against these various means of acquiring revelation outside of the biblical parameters. So first off, within the Old Testament, we ultimately can find false prophets labeled as those who spread false messages, false revelations, and false teachings while claiming they're speaking God's words. Now, although the Old Testament is not limited in its discussion on the topic, our crucial text is really Deuteronomy 18. Now, Deuteronomy in particular speaks to a line of prophets who will speak on behalf of God. So he's preparing for this. Uh, verses 15 through 19 speaks about what one can expect from these prophets, that is, what would make them valid. First, a prophet is one who is raised by God from among the covenant community. And you see that in verse 15. Uh, they are considered the mouthpiece of God in verse 16. So what they say is true. And you see that in verse 17. Verse 18 restates this. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among the brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. Further, we read that God will deal with those who do not heed the prophet's messages, and that's in verse 19. The text also contrasts these valid prophets with false prophets who presume to speak, quote, a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die, verse 20. So basically what we find is that God's word says that those who speak, saying that God gave them a message when he did not, warrant capital punishment. So it's not, it's not a light matter. Further, those who would speak in the name of false gods have the same fate. Finally, verse 21 poses a question. How will we know who speaks God's words and who is false? The answer is given, quote, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. And further, it is stated that if a prophet's words come to pass, but it does not lead you to the one true God, they are a false prophet. And that's... That's important as well. Um, so we find two aspects in the summary 
about prophecy themselves. Firstly, they are composed of commands and by extension doctrine. And secondly, they deal with predictions of the future events in most cases. Now, important to our discussion on the mode of receiving revelation, that is a word from God, Deuteronomy, before verses um, 18-15, establishes what are considered abominable practices, that is, practices that are considered abominations in terms of seeking revelation, guidance, or aid from the Lord. And these practices are listed as divination, fortune-telling, interpreting omens, witchcraft, charmers, mediums, necromancers, and one who inquires of the dead. That's in verse 10. So the text continues, quote, For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that's verse 12. Further, quote, You shall be blameless before your Lord your God for these nations, which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and divinizers. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And that's verse 13 through 14. So here we have a list of practices that are described as abominable means of acquiring prophecy. And within the scriptures, we find these means and deliberate juxtaposition with true prophets. See verses 15 through 19 again. And further, we can observe more contrasts, um, specifically when it comes to uh, these practitioners of abominations are not from the people in verse 18. But instead, they are to be cast out from the people, verse 12. They're not considered part of God's graceful covenant, but under a curse instead, being considered themselves to be, quote, abominations to the Lord, in verse 12. Their messages are not from God, in verse 18, but are from the dead and pseudo-gods and spirits, in verse 10. The people of God are called to be blameless without rebellion and corruption, in verse 13 through 14, while these practices are considered to be detestable in verse 12. And you can also see uh, Leviticus 19.26, 1 Samuel 28, 2 Kings 17.17, Isaiah 2.6, Isaiah 2.20, or no, Isaiah 21.6, and Micah 5.12 for more discussions on that. So while the pagans would um, inquire of magicians and mediums, Israel is called to listen to God's appointed prophets from the covenant community. The signs against the prophets and prophecies within Deuteronomy 18 can be summarized as such. Firstly, they claim to be in the name of God and claim a word spoken by him, but the word was not given to them by him. Second, they are in the name of false gods or they lead to idolatry. Third, they are not a prophet raised from within the covenant community by God. Four, Prophecies are obtained by abominable means. And five, they speak of future events and those events do not come to pass. And an additional claim that can be found in Deuteronomy 13 that I mentioned previously is that prophecy from a false prophet can be true at times, but if the prophet and prophecy leads you to a false god, they are to be rejected. So the text in chapter 13 reads, quote, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to their words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And that's uh, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. So foundationally, 
Whether or not one is a false prophet is indicated by what source a prophecy comes from and to whom a prophecy leads. Uh, even if a prophet is correct in their prophecy, they are false prophets if they lead you to idolatry. Yet, if a prophet claims to be from Yahweh and claims to have a word from him that is false, they are also a false prophet. In this way, God has given us a type of canonical test for prophets. Moving into the New Testament, we see warnings from Jesus and the apostles against false prophets over and over again. Uh, Jesus describes the false prophets as wolves spotted by their bad fruit in Matthew 7, 15-23. And further, he points out that there would not be a lack of false prophets or those claiming to be the Christ or Messiah. And you see that in Matthew 24, 11-24 and Mark 13, 22. Additionally, caution is to be had when a prophet is popular, as many false prophets gain the hearts of people. And you read that in Luke 6, 26. Donna Ridge points out the consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament by saying, quote, The apostles instructed believers to be diligent in the faith and understanding of Christian teachings in order to discern false prophets when they arise. The test of prophets are, one, do their predictions come true? Two, do prophets have a divine commission? Three, are the prophets consistent with scripture? Four, do the people benefit spiritually from the prophet's ministry? End quote. Um, furthermore, the punishment for false prophets in the New Testament is severe in that false prophets are stricken blind by Paul in Acts 13, 6 through 12, and can expect to be thrown into the lake of fire for eternal judgment. And you see that in Matthew 7, 19, 2 Peter 2, Revelation 19, 20, and Revelation 20, 10. Now, if you go look at those texts in Revelation, uh, Revelation 21.8 and 22.15, there's an inclusion of sorcerers in these lists. And this is a broad term that encompasses one who does extraordinary things through the occult and magic. And so we should see this as being linked to those things already condemned in Deuteronomy 18.10. That is divination, fortune-telling, interpreting omens, witchcraft, charmer, mediums, necromancers, or the one who inquires of the dead. Uh, those people, according to Revelation, can expect to be in the company with those who are not found in the book of life and instead thrown into the lake of fire. Now, if there's any doubt, Paul condemns the practice of magic and sorcery in Galatians 5.20. And he lists them as acts of the flesh equal to idolatry. And he says that these things have no part in the methods of a believer. What is crucial is that we recognize that the Jewish community in union with Christ presupposes the problems of those who are in violation of Deuteronomy. We should not think of Jesus and his contemporaries in the Greco-Roman culture lacking these types of violations. Now, what is interesting is that there's um, evidence of Jewish uh, amulets and magical items, um, especially used for attempting to exercise demons. And so that is interesting. And in the New Testament, we see the rebukes moving beyond just the pagans for their practices. Uh, we find the New Testament is calling the Jewish people back to the godly ways of the Old Testament. Why? Well, because like we just mentioned, there was evidence that magic grew within Judaism, particularly within the intertestamental period. And you see this alluded to or explicitly mentioned in the Apocrypha um, and the Pseudepigrapha and early traditions of Jewish literature uh, post-Christ resurrection. Um, in the New Testament, we see a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus 
who is denounced as a pawn of the devil instructed blindness by Paul in Acts 13, 4 through 12, and also Acts 19, 13 through 20. We find this type of issue addressed in other New Testament writings as well. Um, additionally, there are good reasons to believe that the epistle of Colossians was written against a movement of Christian or Jewish mystic syncretism that mimicked the cult culture of the Greco-Roman world. But that's a little bit debated about the heresy of the Colossians. Um, I think uh, Clint Arnold's work on that was fantastic. So pressing on, uh, the Apostle John points out that we, we are not to believe every spirit but to test them, for many false prophets abound in 1 John 4, 1-3. through And within his context, he is speaking against those prophets who would claim revelation that devalues the incarnation of the Son of God or uh, claim that Jesus is not from God. Now, within the literature of 2 Peter and Jude, there seems to be an overlap uh, between false prophets and teachers. Uh, the former will inevitably teach their message, while the teacher will be a deviation from the Word of God. Within Jude, this overlap between prophet and teacher becomes more apparent in his articulation of what uh, constitutes a false teacher. Uh, he states that false teachers are waterless clouds that make promises that never come. In verse 12, they are wandering stars, that basically misleading guides. In verse 13, they are fruitless trees with empty promises of gain. In verse 12, and among other descriptors, they enchant people for their own gain, as we read in verse 16. Now, in the, the post-New Testament writings era, uh, we find that a prophet in the early church was considered, above all, a man of the word. He spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling an important role in the community to edify, encourage, and proclaim the future, thereby witnessing to uh, the abiding action of the risen one. So early Christian literature, such as the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas, point out that prophets could be distinguished from false prophets in their behavior and motivations. Along with this, the Shepherd of Hermas states that a false prophet are those who act like pagan fortune tellers in their methods of prophesying. And that's in 43, 1 through 21. And when it comes to church history and the issue of prophecy, and um, you'll often come across a group known as the Montanists. Montanaeus was a self-designated prophet around AD 155 to 160 who claimed to be the mouthpiece of God, with his revelation being found in trances and tongues of ecstasy. Now, going into this movement would... Um, be beyond our particular scope here. So we can just summarize by saying that the Montanists were excommunicated from the church because of their means of acquiring revelation and the claims as a prophetic movement. And especially uh, some of their claims were particularly, um, well, blasphemous. Um, so with this examination, it really just just scratched the surface, but we glean the following. First, a prophet is one who begins within the context of the covenant community which presupposes a standard of doctrine and ethics. Two, a prophet is claiming to speak for God. It must therefore be found valid through alignment with the revealed word that we have. And in this case, it's the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 letters of the New Testament. Furthermore, the synchronization of Christianity with other systems of acquiring revelation should be rejected and be seen as harmful. So applying these three points... We find that uh, the prophet should, again, begin within the covenant community. They are united to Christ and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Further, they are already presupposed to be in alignment with the basic principles of Scripture. And one of those basic principles that interests our examination today 
that these means of acquiring divine revelation that violate Deuteronomy 18 are antithetical to the Christian worldview because they are presupposed within the New Testament. Uh, And so we are moved to believe that any use of uh, New Age syncretism or witchcraft or fortune-telling, interpreting omens, charms, mediums, uh, and so on and so forth, are the mark of a false prophet and teacher. They are in violation of a fundamental principle of acquiring divine revelation. So according to scripture, movements that entertain such should be considered overtly demonic and at best dangerously misinformed. Those movements ultimately need to be reminded of those warnings that we mentioned in Revelation 21.8 and 22.15. Now, the various means of acquiring prophetic utterances that had become prominent within the contemporary church and those leaders who move congregations in those practices should be placed immediately within the category of false prophets until they have repented with our prayers for their repentance. According to Jude, they are threatening destruction in Jude 12, rejecting authority in verse 8. They are wild waves of restless destruction in verse 13, and they should be avoided according to Romans 16, 17 through 18. Now, while there certainly are and have been in-house discussions that can occur on the topic of um, cessationism and continuationism and the gifts of the Spirit and what that will look like in Orthodox Christianity, we should all be able to find unity and agreement that we need to reject their current trend of assimilating New Age practices or ancient pagan practices that attempt to procure divine revelation. And really this comes down to we need to get rid of the prophetic uno the, the so-called christian tarot cards um, acquiring revelation via automatic writing if you don't know what that is you can look that up acquiring revelation by um attempting to communicate with the dead which has um, popped back up in christian circles and then of course the most prominent that i've i've noticed um has to be with um meditation And there is a type of biblical meditation, but there is a very unbiblical version of meditation. And to summarize the distinction in a positive sense, biblical meditation is filling your mind, chewing on doctrine and instruction regarding God. So it is essentially loading yourself continuously with God's word so that it moves from your head to your heart. There are also other instances where this type of syncretism has popped up. And sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's not. And so there needs to be wisdom and discernment and navigating those types of things. Uh, But, for example, horoscopes. Some people take horoscopes extremely seriously. And really, you could talk about superstitions that have crept into Christian worldviews um, till the cows come home, really. But just thinking through different examples of where you see uh, a type of enlightenment or um, aligning oneself with vibrations or with atmospheric shifts, those are very much alive and being taught in various Christian circles. And you have to realize that, that these come from foundationally different worldviews. And really, if you're interested in, you know, examining that, you look at the broader spectrum of what is called transcendentalism. And within that field, you have what's pantheism, new age, just general polytheism. 
And then there's examples of Buddhism, Scientology, or Wicca. And if we look at some of just the basic fundamental ideas, the, the beginnings of this general worldview is first off a fragmented divine oneness. And this is expressed in different ways. This is the broad general category, but this is where you get those ideas of, um, of aligning yourself via vibration or atmospheric awareness with the universe for some type of alignment or revelation for whatever purpose it is you're looking for. And that's really where you start getting to ideas of um, speaking things into existence because you are properly aligned with the universe. And how this flushes out practically is different based off of where it appears. And this snowballs really into how we understand identity and purpose and, and the end game in these worldviews. Usually there's this expression of divine oneness that is your identity and the purpose of life is to be reunited with all things or the divine essence, whatever that may look like in a particular expression of this worldview. And then the end game, of course, is all people returning to that divine oneness. And this is really uh, where the esoteric Gnostics fell in some circles, where we, we began uh, with this transcendent being, and our goal is to be reabsorbed into this transcendent being. Uh, and this is not new. So some key points of this worldview are the universe and God are inseparable. And this isn't necessarily equal in all views, but you have this equative sense of God with the universe. Um, man is considered an extension of God's nature in some shape or form, usually. Um, we are considered divine in themselves, and this is where you start getting into a little God theology going way beyond what is traditional deification, uh, theosis, um, and this is more of what's called apotheosis, which we discussed early on in season three. But there's also this idea that everything is a un unified whole. There's really no difference between uh, any type of object. Uh, but you also find that God is considered a type of impersonal spirit with that identification with the universe. Uh, and really, this is pantheism. That, that's the most prevalent expression. And you'll find these mixed and matched. And they get mixed and matched again in Christianity. And you again, you find this primarily through the Word of Faith Prosperity Movement, which itself has different facets and focuses. For example, you have some movements that focus more on healing um, and less on wealth or material wealth. And then you have those that focus more on material wealth and physical healing. Uh, but then you also have the secular version of the Word of Faith movement. If, if you're not aware, the Word of Faith movement is identical except in its object. So the Word of Faith makes God its object to be controlled while the secular version has the universe as its object to be controlled. And this is exemplified in works like The Secret. If you don't know, The Secret is a New Age book. It's all about the laws of attraction, um, creating your reality via um, proper alignment and meditation and calling things into existence. And so that's something to, to at least consider, um, especially in terms of well, I, I believe the Word of Faith movement really got its bearings in the 1950s, uh, 1957. I can't remember his name. He's really popular. Uh, but ultimately, when you start examining the Word of Faith's um, presuppositions and ideas about God and how they utilize God and how they believe that because we are um, divine in some sense, we have the same power of God to create as God did with his words— there's fundamental theological flaws because it does not come from a biblical worldview. Um, and so just highlighting this here a little bit, the doctrine that we can manifest reality by our words spoken, that we can create things by our words 
and bring about our realities by um, our faith and our declarations. This idea teaches that Christians can be like God and create reality by the power of their words. Um, so the way they typically integrate these ideas of um, transcendental uh, worldviews with Christianity is by looking at the creation account. God creates all things by his word. Um, and since we are created in God's likeness, we are the image of God. And since Proverbs has discussion on the power of words, we should be able to do the same thing that God can do. Essentially, because God can, we can. And so you can see that there, there's an arrogance here, really. The idea that because God can, we can. And so that can be dismissed a little bit early on, especially when we consider, you know, Satan's old lie in the garden, that we can be like God. And it doesn't take long to realize that we cannot possibly um, match up to God. Uh, and, and you have this declaration, especially in Job. Job is the prosperity gospels, the word of faith movement's worst enemy, uh, really, I think. Especially when we start rounding that corner and, and Job is being put in his place and God's saying, um, who did X, Y, and Z? Who are you, oh man, essentially? Um, but really this idea that because of Genesis 1, we can create by the power of our word is really just lacking a Christian foundation. And why is that? Well, because whenever we read Genesis 1, we find that, yes, God created by his word, but who is the word? The word, according to John 1, 1 through 3, is the eternal son who took on flesh, according to John 1, 14 and Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And by what means did this creation take place? By the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. And that's in Genesis 1, 2, Psalm 33, 6, and Job 33, 4. And what were God's materials? Nothing. He created everything out of nothing in Hebrews 11, 3. And so we must ask ourselves, when comparing this idea that, well, God created by his words, therefore we can, well, do we govern the eternal son who is the word that God created things by? Is the Son of God and the Holy Spirit at our disposal to create as God did? Are we capable to create anything out of nothing? Or is this a unique prerogative of the Godhead, and especially in the context of Genesis 1, where Moses is putting in juxtaposition Yahweh and other deities, saying our God is the God of time, space, and matter. In fact, this is one of the biggest arguments against polytheism in the Greco-Roman era, is that you have the Greeks and Romans who essentially believe that all of their gods are bound and limited to the material world, and especially some of their heroes being um, demigods, right? Uh, instead of having this idea, or even Babylon, where, where gods are born from this primordial soup and the only thing that's eternal is uh, matter, instead of that, Christians have said, well, before time, space, and matter was God. And you can go into Greek mythology, well, what about Gaia? Well, Gaia is... Mother Earth, who created all things, yes, there's a similarity. But if you read the mythology, Gaia was born from an egg in one mythos. And the other, she just kind of appears. But she still has a beginning. Unlike that, God is the first and the last eternal creator of time, space, and matter. The Father creates, through the Word, the eternal Son, by the Holy Spirit. We do not have that prerogative. And so what do we do with Proverbs? Because Proverbs does speak about the power of words. But does it speak about the power of words in terms of us being able to create or bearing the powers of creation? No. Uh, the words that we have do have power. 
but they are relational in nature. They have the power to build up people, to give life to people, or to destroy people. And you see this in Proverbs 18.21 and 12.6. And they can bring blessings and cursings, love or hate or bitterness or beauty and so on. And so by our words, we are judged because of their power, Matthew 12, 36 through 37. But our words are not powerful because we can somehow create. The proper doctrine of human words is that our words reveal our hearts. And that's in Matthew 12, 34 through 35. And the regenerate will praise God, Romans 15, 6, while the wicked will be silenced before God's throne in Romans 3, 19. Our words are indicative of our relationship to God. And you see that in Ephesians 4, 25 and Romans 3, 13. And our love for God. And our words are most powerful when they share the good news and speak of the Almighty and love our neighbor by building them up and instead of causing strife, slander, etc. Our words have power because they are relational. They can destroy or build up people. And you see this emphasis placed within the New Testament quite a bit. The, the, the wisdom of using your words properly, that we will be judged by our words, the words reveal our hearts, so on and so forth. So what, what's the fundamental point that comes out of this rant? That if you just look at one example of how the Word of Faith Prosperity Movement thinks about creating via our words, it falls apart whenever you consider Trinitarian Christianity. Because it wasn't mere vocal vibrations and sound resonations that created the world. It was God, the Father, through the second person of the Trinity, the Son, by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who created the world. And no matter what, we, we simply just cannot do what God does. God is far supreme and superior to any man and every man and every deity. And that's, again, one of the focal points of Genesis 1 altogether. Anyway, that was a little bit of a sidebar and rant. We haven't done one of those in a while um, on the movement because it really does amount to New Age syncretism. And if you read The Secret, which I, I really don't recommend, it's just a waste of time and 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 it's alluring. I mean, it's a waste of time and it's alluring. Uh, and I've seen I've seen how it affects people. I, I have some personal experience, not not from myself, but personal experience relationally with other people who have um, been deep into the weeds of the secret and its messages. And whenever they come out of it, they they very quickly realize how closely it resembles the word of faith prosperity movement. Um, but but that's the thing because of the nature of this worldview in this movement where you can pick and pull and choose, it gets a little bit harder to narrow everything down and put everything in one box because every expression is a little bit different. But that's just how it works. So that's going to wrap up this episode. I hope it was helpful in some shape or form. And God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful week. Um, don't forget that Christ the Cure is subscriber supported. And so if you want to support Christ the Cure, go to patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure and become a patron and help us move forward into season four when that train rolls around. <laughs>